on Monday night, uh, my wife Sean and I went back to our favorite date place as we had a date night, Taco Bueno. Stop judging me. I hear that out there. Now, we actually do like to go to Taco Bueno. And we walked in, and of all things, somebody was in our spot. Yes, I was, I was highly offended by this. You know, it's kind of like you come into church and somebody being sitting in your spot. I guess that's one nice thing if you're watching online. You don't have to worry about somebody taking your seat at church. But somebody was in our spot. Well, I, I joke about that a little bit. There's a, a place that we do often sit, but that's really not why I noticed so much the people in our spot. Let me tell you why I noticed them, because it was a dad and his daughter. They were having a daddy-daughter date, and she was probably 14. So, you know, you tend to see that more with younger kids. And so, first of all, that caught my attention, and I'm like, that's cool, you know, dad having a little special time with his daughter. But what caught my attention even more than that, uh, and I had my back to them, but I could hear them laughing and just having fun, talking, having conversation. It wasn't one of those, you know, this bit on the phone the whole time. And, no, you know, and, and it was just kind of cool, you know, and I'm thinking, that's, that's pretty neat. And then they left and walked out, and they're laughing and smiling. And, and, and it also kind of caught my eye that the dad, I don't know anything about this guy, but he seemed like, you know, a pretty masculine type of a guy, but there seemed to be a tenderness there as well that enabled him to interact with his daughter. And to me, that made him really stand out, you know, because you just don't see that all the time. And that image has been on my mind a lot. Obviously, today is Father's Day, and so I'm thinking about fathers, and I'm thinking about, you know, what is it that makes a a dad kind of stand out, and I think that's it, right? It's somebody that, yeah, we, we, we tend to hit a lot on the side, and it's important of the, the masculine side and, you know, be strong and be a leader and all those manly kinds of things, and that tends to be the direction that we go when we speak to men, right? Like man up, be a man, be a leader, do these things, but today I want to kind of touch on another aspect of what I believe makes any of us, those who stand out, and, and specifically we're talking kind of to dads today, but this applies to everybody, and that is having a tender heart is huge as well. You know, having that, that softer side is really important, and that side that's able to connect on a personal level, I think, really goes a long way. And today we're going to continue on in our series as we have started this new series called Consecrate, Preparing Our Hearts for God to Move, we're looking at David. David was a guy who's described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. He had a tender heart before God. And we're going to look at an aspect of that as we continue on in Psalm 51 here in just a moment. Um, that is, you know, maybe, maybe one that's not overly comfortable because we're going to see David getting into some confession and talking about some of his issues and bringing that out uh, into the open today, but, um, but David was, was the kind of a guy that stood out. And here's the thing, especially, and again, having a, heart, a soft heart before God, that's, that's important if you're a teenager, that's important if you're a child, male, female, it really doesn't matter. I mean, if we want to become who God wants us to be, that ability to connect with God on a personal, intimate level, connect with other people, all that's really important. Um, but, but since it's Father's Day and we're speaking a little bit to dads here, I want to encourage our dads today because you, the fact that, that you are here, the fact that you're watching with us online tells me that you are already a dad who kind of stands out. 
Because you want to know the truth about how things work on Father's Day? This is, this is how it works. On Mother's Day, mom tends to say, everybody come to church with me today. It's Mother's Day. And on Father's Day, dad tends to say, it's, da- it's Father's Day. I don't have to go to church today. I can do whatever I want, right? And so the fact that, that you are connecting with us today in person or online on Father's Day, that, that does tell me already that, that you're standing out. And so I just want to encourage you today and talk about how do we, how do we go further with that um, and Psalm 51 is going to, to be our place that we jump in. So let's open our Bibles uh, starting in verse 3. We did the first couple of verses last Sunday, but we're going to pick it up in verse 3 and go through verse 5 today. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, this, this passage to me gives us a real glimpse into the uh, tenderness that David had before God, the, the soft heart that he had. Uh, guys, am I the only one that has a hard time admitting it when I mess up? You know, it's a whole lot easier to make excuses. It's a whole lot easier to justify and say, well, here's the reason why this happened rather than just owning up to it. And David did that for a long time, right? I mean, he, he tried to run away from his sin. Again, if you don't recall or you weren't here with us last Sunday and you're not sure of the context, this chapter was written as David's confession after being called out in his affair with Bathsheba. So we're talking about him dealing with the sin of adultery, getting a married woman pregnant, while her husband is off at war fighting his battles, he tries to trick the husband into coming home and uh, having intimacy with his wife so that they could say the child was his husband's. That doesn't work, so he has him killed. So this, this is major stuff here. And for a while, David was in hiding mode, right? He, 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 we saw that by, hey, let's bring Uriah back. Let's see if, if he'll sleep with his wife. Maybe then it can just get swept under the rug. Maybe nobody will know what happened. And then he's confronted with his sin. And here's the thing. This, this is what I think sets apart those who have a tender heart toward God. It's not that you're never going to mess up. Although, as we talked about here recently, there is a standard we should strive toward. And there's no, you know, this isn't an excuse to just go down our own path. But the reality is that we are going to fall short. The question is, how do we respond when that happens? If we have a tender heart toward God so that when we... When we do blow it, that we're quick to say, oh my goodness, this is what I've done. And we're quick to repent and we're quick to try to make things right with God. Then that, that's, you know, that's the path we need to go. Uh, it's funny how we have inside of us this tendency to try to hide from God. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember when, when Adam, after Adam and Eve take a, ate from the fruit of the tree that they were not supposed to eat from, and it says that God would come and he would walk with them in the cool of the day, and, and God comes after they've sinned, and so Adam's eyes have been opened at this point, and God comes and Adam is hiding from him. You remember this? Which is kind of just hilarious, right, to think about it. Trying to hide from God is about the equivalent of, you ever play hide-and-seek with a two-year-old? Then when it's their turn to hide, they do this, right? And it's kind of like, I can't see you, so you can't see me. And they're right out there in the middle of the open. And we laugh at that, and we think that's absolutely adorable when a little kid does that and thinks that they're hiding. 
It's a little sad if a grown man or a grown woman does that, right? Like, <laughs> you, you do realize that you can be seen, right? And anything we do to try to hide from God is about as silly as us thinking if we just hide our eyes that we won't be seen. Because God sees. But we do that, don't we? We, we, we just have this tendency to want to try to, to run away from and try to hide from God. And we have become masters at, well, not hiding from God because he sees everything, but hiding from other people. We've become so adept at sweeping things under the rug and not really bringing our issues out. And if there's sin that needs to be addressed, or even if it's not a sin issue, if it's maybe just an issue of struggling through something and going through a difficult period, but feeling like I've got to keep this from people if they really knew this, maybe they would think differently of me or look down on me or whatever. I've been listening to an audio book recently by Paul Tripp. It's a book called Lead. It's a fantastic book. It's geared primarily toward those in church leadership. And a really good book. But he tells a story in this book that I just, uh, I just got to that chapter this week. It's a chapter on candor, which is a fantastic name and a fantastic chapter because he talks about the importance of just really, candor is a good word, you know, just being very forthright. And so if I'm struggling, I, I let it be known. If I have an issue, I address it, those kinds of things, rather than stuffing things in and hiding things. But he tells a story that was really disturbing to me of a, uh, he, he does a lot of work with churches that are going through difficult seasons. And if they've had a staff member go through some type of moral failure or they're going through a really difficult thing, a lot of, that's just kind of a niche that he has found ministering to churches through that. And so he got a call from a guy and he could tell, you know, kind of where the conversation was going that wasn't going to be good just by the tone of his voice. But it was a, um, an elder from a church, a very uh, strong, established church. And he was telling the story and this is what had taken place. He said, uh, on a Saturday night, they had an annual church business meeting. So that happened to be on a Saturday night. Everybody, uh, the, the, the church was together. The pastor led through that, uh, answered questions. Was just, you know, everybody was real excited about the direction they were going. Sunday morning comes. The, the pastor lays out, preaches a sermon, and says, this is the direction that we're going, and lays it out scripturally, just strong vision, clarity. Everybody's excited. They're going in a really good direction. And from the, all appearances, it seemed like everything was moving in exactly the right direction. Well, then the following day on Monday, the elders met with the pastor just to kind of debrief and talk about you know, how things went and where they need to go from here. And the pastor walked into the meeting, and they, this guy said, I noticed that he seemed a little uneasy, a little agitated, but we didn't think that much of it. But uh, before they could start the meeting, uh, this is what he said. He said, I just can't do this anymore. I don't want to preach any more sermons. I don't want to lead any more meetings. I don't want to talk to anyone else about their problems. I'm not even sure I want to be married. He continued on, in case you're wondering, I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't embezzled any of the church's money. I'm just done, and I'm not going to put myself through this. I hate what I'm doing. I find it burdensome and exhausting, and I can't imagine continuing to do it. I can't tell you how relieved I am that tomorrow I won't be a pastor anymore. I don't want to talk to you about this. I don't want you to pray over me. I don't know where I'll go or what I'll do, but there's one thing I'm sure of. I will never be a pastor again here or anywhere else. And with that, he stood up and walked out. 
Well, one of them obviously tried to follow him out and, and to encourage him to come back in and have a conversation. He just ignored him, and he drove off. And as of the writing of that book, they have still not been able, they've not heard one single word. He's not stepped foot back in the church. He's not taken any text or phone calls, nothing. And the question that has to be asked in a situation like that, I mean, first of all, my heart goes out to that for somebody to be in a, a role uh, of a pastor and to be struggling like that. But here's what, what burdened me so deeply is that nobody knew it. Nobody knew what was going on. And I, I just look at that. And thankfully, by the way, if you're wondering, I'm not sharing that story to say I can relate to that guy. Um, I hear that story and I'm like, thank you, God. In fact, I told our elders those with us Wednesday night, we have our prayer guide. And I'm like, I just want to tell you, because I just heard that story, how thankful I am that that's not the environment that we have. Um, but I know that's so common. Where even those in positions of leadership, even those who are, should have a close walk with God, have just learned to hide things. And we've become masters at, at just you know, sweeping things under the rug or pretending like issues aren't there and, 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 and you just stuff it, stuff it, stuff it until all of a sudden you just explode like an atomic bomb and, and you send shrapnel flying and, and take out anybody who has the misfortune of being close to you. So you take not only yourself but others down with you. Um, that's so often what happens when we're not willing to, to be honest and forthright and to, and to have a tender heart to get things out. So all that to say, here's, here's the first main idea today from what I see in this passage and what I see David doing that we can learn from, and that is that, that we must acknowledge our sin without being paralyzed by it. Now, I'll come back to the second half of that in a minute, but we need to acknowledge it. We need, we need to get it out there. We need to have enough candor, enough, enough uh, uh, just frankly, just honesty to say, this is where I am. And, and this is where I'm, I'm struggling, and uh, it's hard to do that. But David did it. And that's one of the things that, that I love so much about him. You know, listen to what he says here. He finally got to the point. I mean, for a little while, he was trying to hide his sin. He was trying to get away with it. But once he came to a point of really dealing with it, listen again to what he said in verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. There's no running away from it. There's no excusing it. There's no, let me tell you why this happened or, you know, no, none of that. He just acknowledges it. He confesses it and he says that this is, this is the issue, is that my sin is always before me. And so it's important for us to acknowledge it and to, to be open about that. But the second side of that is so important too. Is it, we need to acknowledge our sin without being paralyzed by it. Because here's what often happens is once we get it out in the open or once we actually come to grips with it, then it becomes completely paralyzing. You ever been there or maybe known somebody who is and it's like you become aware of your sin and all of a sudden it just kind of eats you. It just entirely consumes you and, and you become just this, this self-defeating kind of a self-loathing kind of a situation of, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I've done this. And, and you go down this path of condemnation and, and, and I'm of no value and I'll never be useful to God or anybody else ever again. And we forget the truth of the gospel, and that is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, yes, we need to, to deal with our sin. We need to get it out there and be honest and confess it. 
But here's something that, that I just want to remind you of today. God loves you deeply. But God loves you deeply not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And think about that for a minute. God loves you deeply, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Because it's in his nature. I, I think sometimes we feel this burden of, if I don't make myself lovable, right? If I don't do the right things, then maybe God won't really love me deeply. And we, we think that God's love is somehow dependent on our character, and it's not. It's based on his character, thankfully. God loves because that's who he is, and that's what he does. And because of that, we don't have to be paralyzed by our sin. We don't have to have our identity in the things that we've done wrong. David was an adulterer and a murderer, and I'm sure we could probably add other things to the list. But that's not his identity that's recorded in Scripture. His identity is that he was a man after God's own heart. I think about people like Moses. Moses was, was a killer. He killed a man. That's not his identity. I think about people like Peter. Peter denied Jesus, but we don't know him as the traitor. That's not his identity. We don't have to be defined by those things. So acknowledge it. Be honest about it. That's the beginning point, but not get stuck in it. And when we do that, it allows us to, to, to say what he says in verse 4 against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And that leads me to the second thing, and it is that we need to recognize the justice of God's judgment. So we, we, we do acknowledge our sin. We don't get paralyzed by it, but we also acknowledge the reality that, you know, when God judges sin, he's, he's righteous to do that. It is right that God would judge our sin. And in this case, you remember what happened as a result of this? Bathsheba got pregnant, but that child died almost immediately after birth. And that was judgment upon their sin. And we might look at that and really struggle with that and think, my goodness, God took the life of a, of a young child. And I mean, that's, that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, right? But I look at that also and I'm thinking, man, for David... I think that would have been a worse punishment than if God had taken David's own life. It was a difficult thing. And, and uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 records how all that played out. And, and uh, even after God has said the child's going to die and as a result of their sin, and still David fasted and he prayed and he refused to eat and he slept on the ground and, and uh, just you know, was inconsolable. And then the child, the child died. And the servants who knew it before David did were afraid to say anything to David because they thought he might do something drastic. He was so upset uh, about the child being ill. But once they reported to him what had happened, you remember what David did? It says that he went and he washed himself, he put on lotion, and he went into the house of God and he worshiped God. And the people were confused. Like, I, I don't understand. Well, the child was alive. You fast and pray. Now you're going and you're worshiping God. And now you're going to come and eat and have a meal. And his response was, well, I know that God is merciful. And I, but, but it was, you know, he, he recognized the justice of God's judgment here. And he continued to worship God 
uh, in spite of his incredible loss. He didn't pull some of the shenanigans that we pull when we sometimes bring um, discipline or judgment upon ourselves and complain about it. And I, David just said, he acknowledged it. God's right in his judgment. And aren't you so grateful that we don't receive the judgment of God like we should? When we want to talk about things being fair, you don't want fair. And I don't either. Thankfully, we don't get what our actions deserve. But, but David recognized that. And uh, I think a big part of what helped him to recognize God's justice and his judgment was the first part of verse 4. And this is so key. When it says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, David saw his sin as an affront to God more than anything else. Now, guys, I just have to be honest with you and tell you, when I look at this and I read that literally, if you take that literally, that's actually not an accurate statement. Because David did sin against other people. And I don't think that the, the point of that was, his point was to say that the primary offense was so much more against God than against anyone else. But think about what, how David sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. You know, it's his wife pregnant while he's away at war, then tries to trick him, then has him put to death. Puts him out on the front of the battle lines and gives, gives an instruction to have everybody retreat. And you know, as I was thinking through that, I thought not only did, did he sin against Uriah, but when Uriah was out on the front of the battle lines and people retreated, do you think Uriah was the only one who was killed at that point? I'm thinking probably not. There were probably some others who died as well. So David, he sinned against the army that was out fighting for him. He certainly sinned against Bathsheba herself. I mean, we don't know exactly what was involved in this. She very well may have been a completely unwilling participant in this, but, but it's the king, and what are you going to do? But even if that were not the case, he still sinned against her by taking her and sleeping with her. He sinned against the rest of her family. Did you know that... that Bathsheba's father, Eliam, is listed in 2 Samuel 23, 34, as one of David's 30 mighty men. And her grandfather, Ahithophel, was David's chief counselor. And so there's a, there's a family history here that he is sinning against this entire family of people, and, and, and yet... He says what he does against you, God, and you only have I sinned. I think his point that he was making was that he was so much more concerned about sinning against God than he was even the, the, the horizontal relationships. And I think our tendency is to flip that in the way we view things. Is to look at the impact of sin on other people. Look at it more horizontally than we do vertically. If I sin, then it's going to hurt other people, it's going to damage relationships, it's going to hurt me in some way, rather than primarily saying when I sin that I'm offending my, my holy God that I serve. I'll give you an example of that. A lot of times we um, can justify things more easily if we can convince ourselves that sin is not hurting someone else. And here's a, a great example that is a, uh, something that is really prevalent in our culture today. It's the sin of pornography. 
And if we wonder, you know, is that really a sin or not? Jesus made it really clear on that when he talked about if, you, uh, if a man looks at a woman uh, lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. And the same thing, by the way, is true if a woman looks at a man in the same way. And so clearly in God's eyes, this is, this is sinful. Um, but in our culture's eyes, the, the, the uh, argument that is sometimes made is this. Well, I'm not really hurting anyone else, right? Now, I, I would argue that that's not actually true, that there is a lot that goes on. In fact, one of the things I discovered, you know, 88% of, of pornographic um, scenes include some type of physical aggression. And so it actually does lead to more aggressive types of behavior and things. And there are a whole list we could go on about. But that's the argument that is made. But here's just a little information about uh, this issue in our culture. 28,258 users are watching porn every second. More than $3,000 is spent on porn on the internet, again, every second. One in five mobile searches are for pornography. 51% of male students and 32% of female students first viewed porn before their teenage years. And the church isn't immune. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. One out of five youth pastors and one out of seven senior pastors view porn on an ongoing basis and struggle with this. I'm telling you, the church isn't exempt from this issue. And yet the argument that we often make is, well, but it's not hurting anybody else. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. See, until we get more concerned about our offense toward God than we are about how it impacts someone else or whether we're going to get found out or anything else, until that becomes our primary issue, then we're really not ready to move on. David viewed his sin as an affront to God first and foremost. And by the way, before we move on from that, um, the point of bringing that up is, is not to condemn and bring guilt uh, it's, it's really to illustrate an issue in our culture. But let me say this too. I mean, if those statistics are right, that means that more than half of the men in this room and those watching online and a good number of women are struggling in, with this issue right now. And I just want to encourage you in this. We'd, we want to come alongside and provide support, whether it's a struggle with pornography or something else, because whether it's that, I mean, we all have issues of some sort. I'll tell you the best resource that I can offer to you is our regeneration ministry. It's a ministry geared toward recovery from whatever type of issue we may be dealing with. And so know that there is a support system out there. I'd encourage you to, to jump in today. If you're struggling with something, you feel like you're alone, man, we need to be surrounded with other people. We need that encouragement and that support of others from a biblical standpoint that can come alongside and be there for us and encourage us. So sign up on the website uh, sign up on one of the iPads on your way out today, um, but get involved and, and find a way to, to, to find some of that support. Um, but we do need to acknowledge that God is right in his judgment, and the way we do that is by, by recognizing our sin as being an affront to God, first and foremost, more than anything else. Here's the last thing, verse 5. David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Here's the third thing is that we need to confess our helplessness 
to change. When he says, I was sinful at birth, what he's saying is that I, I can't change myself. I have an issue, a sin issue, and every one of us does. It has been with us from the very beginning. You know, as strange as it may sound, if we really want to change, we need to acknowledge our inability to change. That's the beginning point, is to say, on my own, in my own power, in my own ability, I can't do it. You ever tried? Where you're dealing with something and, and I mean, you just, you get so disgusted with it and you know it's wrong and you come to God and you say, okay, God, this is the last time this is ever going to happen. This will never happen again. Next time it happens. God, this is the last time this is ever going to, I'm never going to do this again. And the next time and the next time and the next time. And eventually you get to a point where you just get frustrated and give up because you think, I, I, I don't, I just don't know what to do. I can't seem to change. I can't seem to overcome this issue in my life. Well, we have to begin by acknowledging that we are incapable. In our own strength, in our own ability, we are incapable. I mean, David was a capable guy. He was a, you know, he was a warrior. He was a songwriter. He was a leader. He, you know, all these different things. He was a very capable man. And yet, what he said was, I've been sinful from the time I was born. In part, what he was saying was, I am incapable of changing myself. You see, you can't really offer somebody help until they're ready to receive it. You know, one of the greatest joys of my life is being a dad. So today is a special day for me. I love my, my daughters. In fact, uh, Autumn came in Friday night and surprised me. I didn't know she was going to be here this weekend, so I'm enjoying that. Got to spend, had been home for a little while and just went back at the end of, of the week, but... Um, that's one of the greatest joys and privileges in my life. But those of you that are parents know this. There are times where you're, where you're capable of helping your kids, but you really can't until they're ready to receive it, right? You can't force that on somebody. But there are other times where, quite honestly, I'm not capable of providing what they need. And I hate that. As a dad, I want to fix things, you know? And, and when my kids are going through things that I can't fix for them that it's really really difficult but I have to acknowledge that there are limits to my ability to help them but you know that's not true of God there are no limits to God's ability to help us but it's also true that we have to acknowledge our dependence on him you see that's how we come into a relationship with God in the first place it's by admitting our sinfulness it's by saying I, I've fallen short I'll never be good enough I don't measure up I desperately need forgiveness and a Savior. I desperately need for God to do in me what only He can do, and He will. And so that's where I want to leave you today and encourage you with that as we talked about how to stand out, whether it's as a dad or just as a, a person, as a follower of Jesus. Having a tender enough heart to acknowledge your weakness, to acknowledge your sinfulness, and, and to turn toward God and say, God, I, I desperately need you. That's, that's what we need more of. We need that in fathers. We need that in mothers. We need that in teenagers, children. Every one of us. We just need to, to come to a place of saying, I can't do it on my own, but I know God can. Let's pray. Father, thank you today um, on this Father's Day that we have a Heavenly Father who is perfect, who provides everything that we need. 
Lord, we know that we will never come to you with something that is bigger than you can handle. And so thank you for that today. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for um, the payment upon our sin that we don't get what we deserve. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.